0: 17 verse 1 down through verse 23. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God and our Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Now we have this privilege to read them together as a church family and pray that the Spirit would help us to read with understanding to believe, not to be hardened under the word, but to be tenderized, softened under your Spirit's influence. Lord, we pray that we would be careful to listen to what we have heard, and bear the fruit of it. For we know that there are many who hear, but unto damnation. And we pray, O God, that you would help us, in Jesus' name, Amen. Second Kings chapter 17. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea the son of Elah, became king over Israel in Samaria, Samaria and he reigned nine years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, only not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Shalmanzer, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hoshea became his servant and paid tribute. But the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hoshea, who had sent messengers to sow king of Egypt and had offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. So the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded the whole land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and settled them in the land of Hala, Habor, on the river of Gozin, and in the cities of the Medes. Now this came about because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them up from the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt and they had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel in the customs of the kings of Israel which they had introduced. The sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. Moreover, they built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set for themselves sacred pillars and ashram on every high hill and under, and under every green tree. And there they burned incense on all the high places, as the nations did, which the Lord had carried away to exile before them. And they did evil things, provoking the Lord. They served idols, concerning which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. However, they did not listen. But stiffened their neck like their fathers, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenant, which he made with their fathers, and his warnings with which he warned them. And they followed vanity and became vain, and went after the nations which surrounded them, concerning which the Lord had commanded them, Not to do like them, they forsook all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves molten images, even two calves, and made an Asherah and worshiped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Then they made their sons and their daughters pass through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil. In the sight of the Lord, provoking him. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. None was left except the tribe of Judah. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. The Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel away from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. The sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from him until the Lord removed Israel from his sight, as he spoke through all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria until this day. Amen. Now last week we were looking at the nation of Judah, and you'll remember that we covered a couple kings. One was Jotham, who was a good king, even though he ignored the high places. And then we looked at Ahaz, and you'll remember, boys and girls, that King Ahaz was a wicked king. Actually, up until this point, maybe one of the worst that Judah had had in a while. But um, Ahaz sought to do what? He made a foreign altar, and he introduced it to Jerusalem. And so where, where we are right now in the history of Israel and Judah is Israel is in a steep decline. They've been in decline, actually, for many generations now. Judah has also been in decline as we'll see in a single verse here in this chapter though their decline probably has not been going on for as long and it also has um, not been as steep uh, as. and and we're going to see there's going to be a little bit of revival and reformation here in Judah with King Hezekiah coming up next week. But today what we want to do is we are going to look at the northern tribes of Israel, and their captivity to Assyria. Um, We come really here to the tragic climax of Israel's unfaithfulness, decades, even centuries, really, of rebellion against God. Now this chapter is about 278 years since the time of David. If you kind of have always struggled maybe with the history of Israel and Judah, and it's kind of, vague out there, maybe this will help you a little bit um, That to think that we right now, by the time you get to 722 BC, which is the Assyrian captivity, we are dealing with a period of about 270 years plus after David was king. Um, if you wanted to put that in context, uh, 270 plus years in our nation's history would be uh, roughly in the, in the 2050s coming up, okay? So we're, we're still a few decades away from about 270 years since 1776. So in, in some ways, it, it may seem like a long period of time, and in other ways, it isn't so long either, is it? And you'll remember, how did we get here? We had David as king, yet had Saul as king, then David as king, and, and the, the Halcyon days were really David and Solomon, um, that was kind of the high water mark for Israel. And then after that, you have the division of Israel, the civil war between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And as this chapter, chapter 17, denotes, Jeroboam quickly led them on the wrong path. He was the one that introduced the golden calves into Israel because he was afraid that the people would go back down to Jerusalem and, and worship down there and he would lose. His political base. And, and they would return, they would want to return back to, to David and the sons of David. So he introduces the false worship and the idolatry. And really, it just never really recovered. It went from one bad king to another in Israel. Um, now, as this chapter notes, these are the very people who were the descendants of of those that God had saved out of Egypt. This is the people of God who saw the miracles of Moses, who saw the plagues, who saw the parting of the Red Sea, who were sustained for 40 years in the wilderness, who saw the stopping of the Jordan, who gave the the God who gave them victory in over the Canaanite nations, and now they have turned their back on the Lord. So we see that God is leading them into captivity as he promised. Last week in Deuteronomy 28 we looked at that where we saw that if the people of God were unfaithful, he would lead the people eventually away (coughs) into a foreign captivity. They would go into the nations that served other gods. And that historically is where we are today. Now The parts that I've read today, verses 1 through 23, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) you have the first six verses that describe the Assyrian invasion and the capture of Samaria. Samaria is the capital of northern Israel, Jerusalem is the capital of Judah and Benjamin. So when it speaks about the capture of Samaria, which was under siege, if you caught that during the reading, for three years. That's a a long siege. Imagine being, you know, cooped up within the walls of your own city there for that period of time. That was a terrible uh, time and an invasion for that city. But you have a description there of uh, the end. In verse 1, we are introduced to Hosea. We are told in verse 2, Hosea does evil. Uh, then we are told that the uh, Shalmanazar, the Assyrian king, attacks Hosea, and so they bring tribute to Assyria. That is, they pay them uh, and and you know kind of to maintain some independence, so they are not really fully independent. But then they try to rebel against that, and they make alliance with Egypt, and so Assyria finds out about it, and he invades and he brings an end. To Assyria. Now, the really interesting part, and the part I want to spend our time on today, I think really is found in verses 7 to 23, because what you have here is the theological interpretation <coughs> of these historical events. Remember that the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, often will tell you the event, and then it'll interpret the event for you. It'll tell you what happened, and then it'll tell you why it happened. And that's what we find here, is the 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 historian here, for the rest of these verses, 7 to 23, tell you what happened and why. And so what I want to do here is cover this a little bit with you today as to why the nation of Israel went into captivity. Now, there are 14 reasons listed in these verses, and I just cover them quickly, but then I'm going to take these 14 reasons and I'm going to break them down into eight areas, of that eight lessons for us today. So normally I like to give you three main points and some applications, but today it's going to be a little more complicated. I'm going to give you here the 14 reasons that are listed in your text, but break that down into eight lessons for us here today. So let's just cover here the, the reasons that the historian tells us that the people of God went into captivity in 722 B.C. Reason number one, and this one was just a general overarching reason. Some of these bleed into each other, obviously, but overall, you see it there in verse 7. He says that Israel sinned against the Lord. So that this is not just by chance that this is happening this historical event happened and 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 by the way common grace history secular history is in a, is in agreement with all the events that the bible tells you here so it, this is you know any secular historian would tell you these things really did happen and and uh, but what, what they don't often do is tell you the theological reason that the Bible gives you here. So number one here is because the sons of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. So he makes it clear that their disobedience to God is the reason for their going into captivity. Number two is that Israel feared other gods. Now by fear, it means they, essentially they served them and worshipped them. They were supposed to have no other fear other than the Lord their God. They were to put their trust in the Lord and fear and reverence God because why? Because the New Testament tells us that the idols of the nations are vain, they're nothing. Remember, you know, the, the, the early church sometimes struggled with this because you had people in the church who recognized that theological principle and could eat meat that was offered to these vain things. They're like, I don't care it was offered to this God. That God doesn't exist. I'll eat the me. But then you had other people with very tender consciences who maybe had lived a lifetime under the fear of that God. And even though they have now a love for Jesus Christ, they haven't been completely experimentally and experientially delivered from the fear of that idol. And for them, the idol is still kind of real. And so they couldn't eat. Well, the people of God, they were supposed to fear the Lord, but they compromised and they began to have, as a matter of conscience, fear of foreign gods. Number three is found in verse eight. They walked and conformed to the lives of the Canaanites. They walked and conformed their lives to the Canaanites. They they started speaking and acting and living like the nations, the pagan nations. Now, the reason that... That this was such a sin was because the Canaanites, you'll remember, were the peoples that they were supposed to drive out of the land. These were the seven nations. You remember, God did, wouldn't even let Israel into the Canaanite land until what? Until the measure of their sin had filled up. He, God was going to allow them, the Canaanites to keep on sinning so that he could justly dispossess them. And now what do you find? The people who dispossessed them, not completely like they should have, but at least partially, are now beginning to live like them. And they are beginning to act like them. And so uh, God delivered, he does to them what he did to the Canaanites. Number four, you have inventions of the Israelite kings. In verse 8, it says that the people of God walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord had driven out. And in the customs of the kings of Israel, which they had introduced, I think that clearly has got to be a reference to the golden calves that, that were introduced by Jeroboam and other things. But the inventions, the bringing in of these foreign ways of worship. Number five, verse nine, secret sins. Notice here it says the sons of Israel did things secretly, which were not right against the Lord their God. And we'll speak about that in more in a second. Number six was the high places. The high places were those places where they would offer sacrifices and burn incense. And and, and sometimes they would do it legitimately to the Lord. It wasn't like they were serving another God. But the Lord had never told them to use those high places. You remember even Solomon made an offering at the high place where he prayed for wisdom. And God condescended to that and gave him the wisdom. But that doesn't mean that what Solomon did was right. Solomon should not have gone to the high place to make that offering and sacrifice. Number seven is the sacred pillars and the ashram. Sacred pillars and ashram, these were usually like we might in, in our American culture think of totem poles. Um, they, were, they were often uh, um, associated with fertility cults. And because Israel is an agricultural nation, remember they would trade you know wheat for timber when they were constructing the uh, temple you know they they were uh, they were an abundantly fruitful uh, agricultural nation um, but they compromised by what they maintained and even used uh, some of these fertility cults because they thought that that would cause them to have better harvests and so they they allowed that to go on in the nation number 8 They burned incense. This was not to be done uh, by the people. The the, the Incense was to be reserved for the priest to do before the ark of the Lord, outside the veil. Remember that that the incense, the priest would go before the veil and he would offer the incense to the Lord. And the incense represented the prayers of God's people. You see this in the book of Revelation, that the incense came up before the Lord in the book of Revelation and the angel pours out, the bowl of incense, and the bowl of incense is what? The prayers of God's people. So incense was to represent prayer to God. And and the people were not to be offering it in anywhere else but where the Lord was, where the Ark of the Covenant was. Um, and then they, verse 12, number 9, they served idols. They served idols. Uh, they made images. And God had specifically told us in the second commandment Thou shalt not make any graven images. We worship the Lord in spirit and truth. Number 10, they didn't listen to God's messengers. Verses 13 and 14. Number 11, they rejected the law of Moses and the covenant. Verse 15. Uh, Verse 16, similarly, they forsook the law, we are told. Number 13, uh, verse 17. 13, they killed their children, and then finally, divination and enchantments they use divination and enchantments here and I want to talk about the lessons here of these things and I'm going to repeat uh, some of this here so what are the lessons here I'm going to give us eight and applications today for the rest of our time here the lessons number one idolatry is a killer idolatry is a killer It, it is no coincidence that the Bible forbids idolatry in its first commandments the opening commandments, even the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments, deal with this subject here. That the principal reason that Israel was being brought into captivity was idolatry in various forms. Sometimes it came in the form of serving other gods against the first commandment. Sometimes it came in the form of a violate, uh, violating the second commandment where they are serving the living God, but in ways that God had not prescribed such as the high places here. The first four commandments are important for us as Christians to meditate on. It is often the case, I think, that many believers have great reverence in at least uh, for the Ten Commandments in name. But in principle, I think often it's the latter commandments that, where they still have a greater grip on the conscience in the first commandments. That is, God has told us to love him first and foremost. The greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus tells us this is the greatest commandment. But it often is, I think, the case that many Christians have great, greater reverence maybe for the latter commandments, for commandments 5 through 10. The latter six commandments. There, um, we we rightly we turn on the news and we're appalled at a murder. We read the Lagrange Daily News and we hear about a shooting, and we think that that is terrible. But many times, I don't think we are gripped with the idea that it is terrible, as terrible as murder, to have false religion in your community. And yet, this is what the scriptures, and I think it's because we have gotten used to idolatry. We're, idolatry is all around us, and, and we're used to it. And we even think, you know, it, it, it's a part of being, uh, you know, a principled pluralist, just to make peace with it. But idolatry is terrible. It, it is terrible in all its forms. And and I think there needs to be a, a sense that we recapture that that. Idolatry is as terrible or worse than adultery or theft or murder uh, or stealing. That, that this We have to, I think, meditate on the fact that Jesus has said this is the first commandment. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are summarized in the greatest commandment, to love God above all else. And and I think we need to get a sense of that. And I think Israel lost their fear of God. They got used to idolatry in its various forms. Let me just tell you, the first commandment says who to worship. You shall worship God alone. Thou shalt have no other gods. We worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We serve Him alone. We fear no other gods. We have no, there are no other gods. He alone is God. So the first commandment is who I worship. The second commandment is how I worship this true God. They're not the same. Some people think that the the command to make no graven images is a commentary on the first command. You shall have no other gods. No, those are two distinct commandments. The first commandment says who to worship. Worship God. The second commandment says, "How do you worship this true God?" We worship this true God according to the Scripture in spirit and truth. If if we worship the true God, by, let's just take a ridiculous example, boys and girls. And and I take up juggling here. We say we're going to have a juggling moment here, and I start juggling. I, it's ridiculous on purpose, and 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 we incorporate that into our weekly worship service. All right, there's the pastor, there are the elders juggling. We just thought it would be entertaining and get more people in. But that, that is something that God has not commanded us to do. It's forbidden. You see, a lot of you Christians, you think if it's not forbidden, it's okay. Wrong. If it is not commanded, it's forbidden. That's the Bible principle of the second commandment. It's not, it's okay if it's, so long as it's not prohibited. You can't write a book that big. <laughs> if it was important to God, he'd tell you to do it. And if it, if it isn't in there, don't do it. That's the principle that evangelicals have forgotten. We think so long as it's, so long as it's okay with us, and we can't find any verse against it, then we can do it. Nope. If God wants it in his worship, he'll tell you, either by example or by precept, by explicit command. Otherwise, it's forbidden. Even if you think it's a good idea, even if you like juggling, okay? (laughs) It's forbidden to be done. The worship of God is to be simple. It's supposed to be the things that God has set forth for us to do. So that's the second commandment. The third commandment is, how do I worship? This too, I think... We probably—I'm probably guilty of this as much as anybody in this room—and not preparing for worship as we should. We we should come with reverence. You shall not take the name of your God in vain. How many times have I sung a hymn? And I don't know how I have this capacity to sing the words up in front of everybody and still think. Oh, what's wrong with so and so? Why aren't they sitting together as husband and wife? What? Is they have an argument on the way? And my mind just starts going. Hey, I got this, Pastor Walden. You know, and I, I start going down that rabbit trail. Got to follow up with them. You know, and then you realize, whoa, bring it back, Boyd. Focus on the text right in front of you. You know, somebody told me years ago, and I found this to be helpful. Try and look at every word in the hymnal as, as you are singing it. Try and give yourself that second, that nanosecond, of focusing on that word as you sing. We are supposed to sing self consciously unto the Lord with reverence. For God is in our midst, He inhabits the praises of His people. And then the fourth commandment is about when do I worship? So, who do I worship? How do I worship Him? Uh, In what manner? Reverently, the third commandment don't take the name of God in vain. You don't you know, bring your mouth near, but your heart's still far away. And then finally, when? That we worship the Lord corporately on the Lord's day. So that by the end of the Bible, you have the day specified. On the first day of the week, the church would gather. The apostles would preach. The apostles would would have the church gathering together, and so that even by the time John writes the book of Revelation, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So it's even got a name. Sunday, we call it the Lord's Day. So idolatry is a killer. And, you know, I know there's a lot of uh, interest in cultural reformation right now, um, but the first step to cultural reformation has to begin not with politics, but with the church. Now, I'm all for engagement with the culture, politics included. But the first step to cultural reformation must be a reformation and a renewal within the church. Now, the problem is some churches only stop there. They think, OK, once the church is reformed, then, then we stop. No. and I, I, I'll talk to that later. But, but it has to begin there. Judgment begins with the house of Israel. So if we're going to preach to the culture, we also have to make certain that we are conforming ourselves as a church, doing what the church should do. So idolatry, number one, is a killer. Number two, beware of being conformed to this world. Beware of being conformed to this world, Romans chapter 12 tells us. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind through the word of God. The Israelites were brought into Assyrian captivity because they were conforming their lives, their families, their worship, their culture to that of the Canaanites. They were not bringing the Canaanites up and Christianizing the Canaanites. The Canaanites were dragging them down. Israel chose to be like the Canaanite nations they supplanted. And as God had brought judgment on the Canaanite nations through the instrumentality of the Israelites, now he is bringing a judgment on the Israelites through the instrumentality of the Assyrians. So I would say by way of application, first of all to you young people, our our teenagers out there, our pre-teenagers out there, that you watch your heart, guard your mind, The culture wants to seduce you and wants you to conform to it. This is the strangest thing I know, because what does the culture say that it wants? The culture says, oh, we want individuality. We want you to be you. But isn't it funny that you that they want you to be is just like them? The culture doesn't really want you to be a Christian. No, in fact, the Bible tells us they are theologically and morally motivated to get you to conform to them. Romans chapter 1 tells us that sinners aren't happy until you're sinning with them. They're not just happy to be in their own sin. They want you to endorse it and affirm it and legalize it. So this is where we're headed as a culture. You see, homosexuals first wanted a just simple toleration. They don't want just toleration anymore. They want you to affirm it. And that's where we're headed, unless there's revival in this country, that those of you who won't affirm it, there are going to be consequences for you in your jobs. There will be economic consequences. There will be an app. And, and you, you'll have social credit and depending on your social credit score it's going to open or close doors. And guess what happens when you won't affirm pride week? Your your social credit's going to go down. And your insurance bills are going to go up and you know there's going to be all these consequences coming. You're going to start combining technology and AI and and you, you know but God God you know, is gracious, and he may he may change the culture. We we don't know, but but they are not content with your nonconformity, even though they're all into nonconformity. Okay, they all say, "Oh, you know, be your own person," but they don't mean it. Um, so don't, young people, just beware that the world is trying to make you into their image, and and guard your heart. And keep Christ, keep Jesus as your first love. And I'm, I'm not saying, you know, fear the world. I don't, I don't want to, um, I don't want you to hear me saying, okay, now go build yourself some kind of, um, you know, cultural fortress and don't come out. Uh, you know, build yourself your own cloister as a family. Um, you know, you're to be salt and light out there. But just be aware that as you do interact, the, the world is, is wanting you and, and you want them for Christ. So don't be conformed to this world. Number three, we cannot disregard the regular principle of worship. It is far more important than churches realize. The failure for Israel To maintain the regular principle of worship led to the downgrade in Israel, and it will in the church. Now, some of you are new, and I know you don't know what I just said. The regular principle of worship. What is the regular principle of worship? I explained it earlier, but I didn't give it the name, and now I'm giving you the name. The regular principle of worship is the scriptural principle where that which is not commanded in Scripture is forbidden. That is, the way we worship matters. And so the church, for example, the high hills. How many times over the last many months have we seen that phrase again and again and again and again? He was a good king, but what? You know the answer. He didn't deal with the high places. How many times have we read that? Many. That's the regular principle of worship. Failing in that king's ministry. The the, the, the the people of God, their failure to deal with the high places was a failure to apply the regulative principle. The, the, the high places, again, they were not places serving necessarily other gods. They were people who may very well, including Solomon himself, was sacrificing and serving the Lord Yahweh Jehovah. But the high places were places that God said, "I didn't I didn't command you to go to those high hills and under those." luxuriant trees and offer the sacrifices. I commanded you to do, come to Jerusalem three times a year and, and to offer those sacrifices and bring your offering there before the ark of the Lord and later the temple. So the, 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 the disregard for the regular principle of worship leads to the downgrade in holiness in the church. Number four, verse nine, beware of secret sins. Holiness matters in our home. It wasn't just in the church and in the public worship. But notice here that the scripture makes it clear. Our private lives, our private thoughts, our private words matter to God. Holiness must begin inwardly. One of the reasons we are told in verse 9 that the people of God were driven into exile is because the sons of Israel did things secretly which were not right against the Lord their God. It matters what we, how we are living at home. Our private lives need to be holy. They should not be surprises to other people. We need to mortify the corruptions that are always within us. We need to reform our weaknesses and strengthen the grace of God within us. Listen, um, if, you know, if, if you're looking at things on TV that you shouldn't be, or on the computer that you shouldn't be, you're part of the problem of our culture. Even if you're going to church. If, if you're not living a, a, a life where you're guarding your eyes, um, if you're not making a covenant with your eyes, in this defiling culture that we live in, you're part of the problem. I mean, don't worry about the, who the president is if you're looking at pornography a lot. You see? You've got to, you've got to with Job, make a covenant with the Lord that I'm going to live a holy life even when nobody else is watching I'm going to be a man, a woman, a child of integrity in my home. Uh, and, and that there's no, no big surprises. Number five, we must be aware of disregarding those who bring the word of God. In verse 13, what was one of the reasons they were driven into exile? It was because... They didn't listen to those that God had sent. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and every seer saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to all the law which I have commanded your fathers and which I sent to you through my servants, the prophets. God sent prophets to preach the word to the people and the people heard the preaching but they didn't listen. You know, we see this in the book of Ezekiel, don't we? Ezekiel complains about this. He says, you people, you, you love to listen to me, but you love to listen to me like you like to listen to some opera singer. You love the sound of my preaching. The, you, you love the way it, it moves you emotionally, and you you, en- you enjoy it at that level, but you're not doing what I, Ezekiel, and saying the Lord says to do. We are not just to be hearers of the word, but we are to be doers of it. We are are not just to go to church, but we we are there to listen to the word of God, not just to the words of the minister and to sit in judgment of, well, did the minister use enough illustrations or how'd you like that sermon or... But, but we are to sit there and listen. And, and you know, this is important because, you know, um, you're not, there, there are going to be times, listen, where we're going to have to have men who don't have many years of ministry under their belt. We're going to have to have seminary students occasionally preach to us, okay? And they're not going to be as well developed. They can't be unless they're, you know, just gifted geniuses like Spurgeon who just, you know, at 20 years old are doing incredible things for the Lord. Most guys, you know, are just like any other vocation. It takes a while. And, and so what do you do? You know, you have to, you have to come listening to, for the word of God to be brought to you there. But even if the, the gifting is not as great, um, you need to listen. Because you're listening not for the words of the minister, per se, or how eloquent he is, but you're listening to say, what does God have for me to hear today? and to meditate upon the word, and to let the word produce its fruit. But disregarding your ministers and your elders is hazardous. God is gracious, and you know, 250, 70 years is a long time, isn't it? And look how gracious God is over those years to give them an Elijah, and an Elisha, and others, uh, you know, the pro- all those prophets that Obadiah saved their lives. You know, a hundred prophets there and there. I'm sure there were more prophets than that. And God gave lots of preaching to his people. But it, what? The preaching didn't profit them. They were hardened under the preaching rather than softened under the preaching. And we need to be careful how we listen because God can use preaching as a means of hardening your heart, not just softening it. If we, if we listen but uh, do not apply i got to keep moving here. Wow, I didn't realize I'm running out of time. Number six, the rejection of God's covenant. <clears throat> the rejection of God's covenant was another reason listed. It's in verse 15. They they rejected the covenant. What is the covenant? The covenant is God coming to his people and saying, I love you, I am saving you, believe in me, and show that you believe in me by obeying me. That's the covenant. And And... And you have to own the covenant, young people. How do you own the covenant? You make Jesus Christ your first commitment. And you stick with Jesus Christ through thick and thin. You love Jesus Christ. You love God through Jesus Christ. And you own that covenant. you say, this is my life. This relationship with God is, is my whole life. I would rather lose my life than lose this covenant I have with God. I, I would rather own the covenant, even if it, it costs me my freedom, my liberty, even if it means I go to prison, even if it means martyrdom. I want God as my God. I want to be one of God's people. I want to be in union with Jesus Christ. And I don't want anything to come between me and Christ. I love this covenant relationship. I, I, the marriage is a covenant relationship, isn't it? Marriage is, is a bond between a husband and a wife where each is vested in giving the other 100%. It's not a contract. It's not a 50-50 agreement. It's a covenant saying, I will be faithful through thick and thin. Own the covenant, young people. Own it by publicly professing your faith in Jesus Christ, saying, I want Jesus Christ. And if you don't feel like you want Jesus Christ, then start there and say, Lord, help me. I don't feel like I want the covenant. I don't feel like I want Christ. Give me grace, O Lord, that I might love Christ, that I might want the table of the Lord, that I would want to be with your people, that I would want to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob on the last day. Lord, give me grace. I need grace, Lord. I don't feel it in my heart. My affections are not there. My mind is not there. Lord, something's wrong with me. Heal me, Lord. Heal me, Lord. Help me, God. Raise me from the dead, O Lord. Make me own this covenant that I would sign it myself. Put yourself, as I've said before, young people, in the tree. Climb the tree. If you can't see the Lord, you're too short and the crowd is there, what do you do? Zacchaeus climbs up in the tree and he puts himself where he'll see Jesus Christ. Put yourself, if you don't see Jesus Christ by faith, put yourself in a place. Surround yourself with people who see Christ. Surround yourself with people who will build up your faith, encourage your faith. Put yourself in prayer. Climb the tree by Seeking the Lord in secret prayer. The Bible says, Jesus makes this promise. He says, I will not cast out any who come to me, any who seek me. And God will not cast out. Seventhly, the people of God were cast out of the land because they killed their children. The application, I hope, is obvious. They murdered their children. They offered their children at, at to gods like Molech, and they put them in the fire. And you know, I think this shows not only the sin of abortion, but why would a parent put their child in the fire? Why would they take an infant child, a toddler, put them in the fire of the false god? It, it, I think it shows also the futility of trying to pay for your own sins. There, there is something profoundly wicked, I think, in this. Not only in that it, in, the, in the murder of a child, but they would do anything, even the murder of a child, to atone for sin. And reject the atonement that God has given in sending his own son to take our place. It's the sacrifice of Christ, and the Son of God, that brings about the cleansing of sin, not the offering of our children, sinners that they are, to atone for our sins. Then finally, they were turned out by God, for verse 17 we are told, for divination and enchantments. They turned to sorcery, witchcraft, mediums. They, they sought to employ spiritual forces of darkness and wickedness. That is a reality. Um, I think here again the culture doesn't want you to believe that there's such a thing as witches and witchcraft. But there is real evil, spiritual evil here. Let me close by saying this. The fall of Israel serves as a redemptive historical warning, first for the church. The church must heed the historical lessons, or we are going to be led into the captivity of the culture. Many churches are already in the grip of the world. They have already capitulated. They have already surrendered. Indeed, they are no different from the world. Their values are the values of the world, and as the values of the world change, so does those churches. They look like a lamb, but they speak like a dragon. And they are wicked to the core. They have been already captive, made captive by the culture. But cultural captivity is a danger for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church too. We are not immune to it. And we must be on guard against every form of idolatry, lust, desire for other things that would lead us away from the simplicity of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is our... Sufficient safeguard. We have to watch our hearts and watch our lives. And if you are backsliding, here's your warning. Don't be as the Israelites who didn't listen. You're backsliding. Deal with it today. Don't eat a lunch today if you have to. And make it right with God. And, and say, I am not going to go into captivity The last application is this. The fall of Israel is a redemptive historical warning to us as a nation. We must remember that God controls the nations. He sets the boundaries. The prophets of the Old Testament not only spoke against the sins of Israel, but they also many times spoke against the sins of these foreign nations that surrounded Israel. And And ministers who apply God's warnings only to the church... Fail in their calling. The church is not only to preach to the faithful, but it is to address outsiders as well. Look what happened to Jonah when Jonah refused to preach to people outside of the covenant. When he refused to go to Nineveh. God spoke to Egypt, God spoke to Moab, God spoke to Ammon, God spoke to Tyre, God spoke to Sidon, God spoke to Babylon through the prophets. You can look them up. And we need to do away with the preaching that ignores applications to the world. The fall of Israel is a warning to all nations. The God of Israel is the God of all nations and he will not be mocked by sin. We cannot disregard our Heavenly Father's commandments and expect ongoing blessings. We must speak to those who have no faith in God at all as well. Listen, if nothing else, if you, if you have no regard for God, you surely have regard for your own security and economic interests, right? <laughs> then you need to fear God. If that is your only motivation, is your own self-interest and (laughs) self-worth, it is right for you to fear God and to be be a supporter of the church. It is within your, your own interest to read the scriptures and to put your faith in Jesus Christ. God does destroy empires. And if you're concerned for your country today, then you need to be concerned about your own private holiness. If you hate what's happening in your country, but you're looking at indecent things, you're letting your daughter dress inappropriately, you're taking your wife for granted, you're cheating on your taxes, you're desecrating the Sabbath, you're ignoring your aged parents, then you're a part of the problem. The United States needs the balm of Gilead found in Jesus Christ. And how do you receive Jesus Christ? You receive Jesus Christ by faith and by repentance. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that the Spirit, Lord, help us to hear and to apply. Lord, you have given us this word and we are accountable to you for it. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. There is none righteous in this building. There is, there is not one who has not sinned here. We ask, O oh God, that You would not enter into judgment with us. But, O Lord, give us grace that we might trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the Lord's table where we find the salvation that we need. The salvation is not to be found in, in merely the bread or the wine. But in what this table represents, Jesus broke the bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. At the end of the meal, he took of the cup and he said, this is my blood for the remission of sins. Jesus was giving us this meal because he was giving himself on the cross. And as we eat the bread and as we drink of the cup, what we are doing is by faith, we are receiving the Savior. We are saying, Lord... You are my salvation. I have no hope for me personally, for my family, for my church, and for my country except by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What we do here is we're renewing this covenant with the Lord. And we eat the bread in faith, and we drink the cup in faith, and we believe that God will use this simple meal to strengthen our love, our faith, and our zeal for Jesus. That we can go out and bring the good news that all the nations need of Jesus' work. Father, we thank you for this meal. We pray that you bless us as we eat and drink in faith. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Forgive us even if we haven't really fully prepared ourselves to come to the table like we should have. We ask God that you would forgive us of these shortcomings. Help us, Lord, to love you, to fear you, to know you. Even those, Lord, who aren't going to be taking, Lord, we pray that they would worship you even as they observe others taking of this table. We pray that all our children and our grandchildren would also put their trust in Christ and come to this table. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to go ahead and serve uh, the elements, and then we'll eat and drink together. If you have been baptized, you've made a public profession of faith in Christ, and you're a member in a good standing of a Bible-believing church, please join us here today. body of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to you. So take and eat in remembrance of Jesus. Father, we thank you for loving us so. Thank you for loving us, Lord Jesus. Thank you for sending the Spirit to seal us in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this communal fellowship at this table. Thank you, Lord, all you have done for us. Make us a grateful people. In Jesus' name, amen. We will uh, have our offering as the deacons come forward. And um, since we've run over in time, we also will stand together while we're taking the offering, singing the doxology, praising God from whom all blessings flow. Gracious Father in heaven, we know that we cannot earn our salvation nor purchase it. Lord, if you were hungry, you wouldn't tell us. You do not want the sacrifices of bulls, but Lord, you have asked us to trust in you. May, Lord, these offerings come from a grateful heart that simply relies on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness that we need to stand before you on the day of judgment. May you also use these gifts to further the kingdom of Christ around the whole world, to open new doors for an effective service, and to build up the nations in Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing 528, please, in the hymnal. 528, we'll sing the first and last stanza. 528. Rejoice, ye pure in heart.
1: One and six rejoice. Ye
0: of Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.